A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with uh, Jewish History Soundbites. This episode, in honor of the first yard site of the Novominska Rebbe, Rabbi Yaakov Perlau, has been generously sponsored by Dovi Silberstein. For all back office, nursing home billing, contact Care Network Health, either phone or text 908-305-0595. Last year, um, we had a tribute episode. It was right after his unexpected passing uh, at the peak of the pandemic, and and you uh, might want to check out that episode as well. I'll post it, uh, link to it. It was Erev Pesach uh, last year. It was, it, was, it was that time it was when it seemed like the world was coming to an end. And it sure has been a historic year, uh, commemorating the yard site of the Novominsk Rebbe now. So remember the whole year that has passed uh, since then from that peak of that uh, pandemic time. It's hard to believe what we've all been through. We'll need some historical perspective on all this someday. So this year, a year later, it's a bit more time to reflect on the Navaminsk Rebbe's place in Jewish history. So it's an opportunity to to hear a little bit more about him and his background, his predecessors, his ancestors, his family. A lot of uh, history there comes into place. It's been quite a year on the podcast as well, with more than a half a million listens since last Pesach and constantly growing. So it's been quite a blessing uh, for this podcast. And I want to thank you all listeners uh, for tuning in and for listening and always the great feedback uh, that I get from you and it's always great to hear from you all so thank you after Pesach it's spring once again and we're ready for season two uh, I like the sound of that of the the city episode series we're gonna pick up pick off pick up from where we left off last year um, profiling different cities. We called it the Great American uh, Jewish uh, Cities uh, series last year. And um, we're ready to go again. We're going to start after Pesach. We're going to launch it. And if you want to sponsor your city, if you want your city's Jewish history story to be included in this uh, series, to be in touch with me about that at yehuda.yehudagaber.com, we'll get the story of your city told in Jewish history. If you haven't yet bought your Mishpacha magazine uh, for Pesach, um, first of all, it's a good workout. It's heavy enough. It's like lifting weights when you pick it up from the store or if you pick it up uh, from your mailbox, if you subscribe. 
lot of stuff there, a lot of material, but there's a lot, a lot of great content. But um, there's an ex- if there's some of the stuff that Davi and I have prepared for you, which I think you'll find very interesting. First of all, there's an expanded for the record column, a yucky list, a list of yucky Talmidim, German students who went to the Mir Yeshiva in pre-war Poland. Very interesting, especially after the Nazi rise to power, many of them who rose to prominence in the Jewish world. So uh, you'll find that interesting. There's also an, an entire supplement, <coughs> excuse me, in the ex- expanded Mishpacha magazine uh, for Pesach about brothers. And uh, we profiled some very interesting pairs of brothers uh, and one trio of brothers, prominent brothers in Jewish history. So that should be quite interesting as well. And last but not least, uh, something that we really worked hard on. This is a a real genuine project. Uh, it was really, really nice. It came out very nice, if I say might say so the least, if I think so myself. Uh, I think you'll all appreciate it. Enormous amount of work. Davi and I interviewed uh, people uh, who had interacted with great Torah leaders of the previous generations. We call it Eyes That Saw Angels. People who uh, saw and interacted and encountered angels. People who to us are just legends, but they met them and actually talked to them. An amazing project. They're amazing people that we interviewed. Not just the stories that they told us, which are so interesting and historic, but also to get to meet these people, the, the ones who carried that message and You'll enjoy them all. You'll you'll really like it. So make sure to pick up your Mishpacha magazine. I also want to uh, take this opportunity to note that it's exactly a year since we started our Mishpacha history column. For the record, was uh, the Pesach edition last year. So it's exactly a year ago. So I want to thank all the professional staff at the Mishpacha magazine for giving us the opportunity to have this platform. Very went out on a limb to have a Jewish history such a boring topic, and to be able to include that in their magazine was very brave of them. And uh, so we hope that you all enjoy it, and and we love all the great feedback that we constantly get from all our readers uh, of that as well. Another very important announcement, it's hard to believe, but it seems that this spring or summer, we might actually be going back on the touring trail. I haven't even seen an airplane in well over a year, and definitely not been on one. But it looks like that the world might be going back to uh, normal, or somewhat normal, or we'll see what type of normal it is. So there are some things that are brewing, so stay tuned for details, when and where and all that, and hopefully we'll have some trips available pretty soon as well. So I want to get to the Novominsk Rebbe, Rabbi Yaakov Perlau, his yard site a year since his passing, and last year I mentioned that he was a man of many hats, many talents, also and primarily a leader in many ways of the Jewish people in the, uh, the last half a century. Um, I asked last year on the tribute episode, I also profiled somewhat uh, the Novominsk Hasidic dynasty, uh, where he came from. So this year I want to delve a bit more into both of those points who he was and his career, his diverse positions. Um, and also how he fits into the bigger scope of Jewish history, who, where he came from, and different aspects of that also. So let's just review his basic bio of his positions, even though I mentioned it last year, but just to get back into it. Uh, he was born in the United States. He went to Chaim Berlin Yeshiva. He was a student of Rav Hutner, of Yitzhak Hutner. And then he, uh, he used to actually, I don't think I mentioned this last year, he used to go to the newly established Beis HaTalmud Yeshiva in East New York. Chaim Berlin in those days was in... Uh, was in Brownsville, so East New York's right there. 
And he used to speak to the Altamiris. He was always seeking to, you know, what, what more, what other uh, diversity he can incorporate into his Yiddishkeit. Very interesting. He also attended Brooklyn College. He was a Rosh Hashiva at Hebrew Theological College in Skokie for several years, for about seven years in the 1960s. Um, and when he came there in the, in the 60s, there was some very, in, in to, to Skokie, to, to Chicago, there were some older and very important rabbeim there, still from Slabotka and other pre-war yeshivas. But Rabbi Yaakov Perla, this is his first position, this is his first rebbe position. He was young, he was American, he spoke a perfect English, and he was a huge Talmud Chacham. And these high school kids, he taught 11th grade, that was his official position. These high school kids, he was like their role model. He, they wanted to be like him. Um, when Rabaran Soloveitchik uh, came to the yeshiva to deliver his first shear in the yeshiva in Skokie, he became a yeshiva in Skokie. So the Rebbe said, said to his Talmudim, he's a great, here's a great man. We can all, should all learn Torah from him. And uh, he inspired them to reach to, to, up to, to Rav Soloveitchik to learn from him. And he said to them, I myself learned by him. I was by him in Chaim Berlin when I was younger. Ravarin Solvechik was in Chaim Berlin in the earlier part of his career. Um, he would, um, he was like a father to his students in Skokie. He would even, uh, later on in life when he maintained, uh, he was still in touch with them. So he would do, even do mundane things with them. He would, if they were seeking employment and, and, uh, and they are asking him advice about that. So he would ask to review their contract with him. Can I, let's go over, let's go line by line, you know, making sure they're getting a, a good deal from their new boss. He literally was interested in every, every aspect of their lives, throughout their lives. When a student uh, couple would arrive to ask advice, so uh, one of the students related from his Skokie days, he said his, that the Rebbe asked his wife, uh, what do you say? What do you have to say about this? So she said, what do you mean? We came to ask the Rebbe's advice. So he says, well, I want to hear what you have to say about it. Uh, you know, he would answer the phone himself when someone called his home. He didn't have any Gabai or any other family member answering the phone. Uh, he was the 11th grade Rebbe there in the 1960s. He was the one who transformed the curriculum at Skokie that a po- for a post-high school program um, to study three sdarim a day, to learn Torah the entire day, which was a big novelty there in Skokie in the 1960s. Um, I mean, there was, there was a smicha program, there was, there was, but the, he was, he incorporated as he, what he, what he, what he started as a, for a post-high school, he called it the MS program, Igur Masmide Torah. And he was in charge of it. He convinced parents to send their kids to push off college for a year or two. He convinced the administration to have this program there. And uh, he and he became the Rebbe of it. He was also the 11th grade, 11th grade shear, but he was also in charge of this post-high school program. So he would give a shear, a high-level shear in the morning, with Chaim Brisker, all the Litvish alumnus. And at night, he would give a shear in Chesidus. He would give Sfas Emes. So he, would, he was someone who... You know, like I mentioned last year, he incorporated all worlds into his uh, worldview. He was able to uh, to be able to be there for the American kids in Chicago. He was able to be with the Sfasemis. He was able to be with the Rebbeim. He was he was there with everything. He would invite the students to his home. He studied with them. He he he, he taught them that they can do it too. They can become great. Uh, a couple of days before Shavuos every year, he institute shifts to study Torah in the base medrash throughout all hours of the night. He wanted to show. Uh, his students in Skokie, that they can learn, get up in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock in the morning and study Torah. This way there would be someone learning in the base Medrash for the three days before Shavuos at all all, all, all hours. He, he was very novel with the ideas that he had 
Uh, in fact, uh, it was so they were so close to him. Over a half a century after he had finished this rather short stint, seven-year stint in Skoki, there was a group of alumni who gathered on one of his visits to Israel and met him in Lava Malka. So 50-some-odd years later, some of them were Rashi Yeshiva, rabbis, and all of them who started on their path by the would-be Rebbe, who was still not even a Rebbe then. He would even write letters to his Talmud. He would, he would send uh, his students in Skokie to go learn in Yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael, in, in Karambiavna, and Mir, and other places, and he would write letters to them. He would keep in touch with them. Uh, unbelievable. It's a really amazing stories just from his Skokie years. Later on, he was a Rosh Yeshiva in Breuer's, in Yeshivas, uh, in Yeshivas Rabbeinu Shamshaval Hirsch, part of the Kaladas Yeshur and KJ Kehila. And he was a Rosh Hashiva there for 11 years, from 1970 to 1981. I mentioned this last year also. And um, he had a very close relationship with Rav Breuer. He sought out his advice for everything. He very much uh, was impressed by the Yaki community in Washington Heights. And he lived in the Heights for part of that time. He was a rabbi in the shul there. He maintained a relationship and delivered classes in the community even after he left. Um, the Rebbe said that he revered her Breuer. Very interesting. He said he saw him as a figure of, of, of Jewish history, which he was. He's someone who will also have to have an episode on, uh, Rav Yosef Breuer, uh, amazing person. One day we'll have on him, um, if you want to sponsor. And, um, and one time when he was in, living in Washington Heights, when he was a Rashiva there in Breuer's, so the Rebbe made a bar mitzvah for his, his for a son, or, or his twin sons, I don't remember. And um, so his father, the Nevimitz Rebbe, Nachum Mordechai Perlau, came for Shabbos to Washington Heights, the previous Nevimitz Rebbe. And he says to his son, he says, on Sunday morning, we have to visit Rav Breuer. He's the rabbi. He's the Mara de Asra of the, local, of, the, of the town, of the Kehila, of the community. So we have to pay our respects tomorrow morning. That's what he told him on Shabbos afternoon. A few minutes after Havdalah, Rav Breuer shows up at the door. He beat them to it. He comes to visit. He came. He was the rabbi, but he came to visit the Navaminsk Rebbe. Um, the the Navaminsk Rebbe actually would ask for Breuer advice about uh, everything. A very unique relationship. Two people from such different worlds, and yet, uh, and yet, the Rebbe was always amazed that Breuer was able to rebuild the Frankfurt community of KJ and really respected the traditions of that community. Um, so, so that was also another stint. The he was a rabbi of a shul I mentioned. He became the Novominsk Rebbe, so now he becomes a Hasidic Rebbe upon his father's passing. And he's also the Rosh Yeshiva of his own yeshiva. He opens the Novominsk Yeshiva in, in Borough Park. So he's literally doing everything. And that's not the least of it, because the main thing that he's remembered for is being a leader, a leader in the Jewish world. He was um, a leader of the Yagodis Yisrael, leader of the Mi'etzes, leader of Torah Masorah. He wrote articles, he wrote Sfarim. He was a public speaker, a very dynamic and charismatic speaker. He had personal interactions and cared for people, and he was literally a man who seemed to just to be able to do it all. Someone who really understood the world, he understood the circumstances of the world, and who would take the responsibility and the wisdom to make decisions for uh, for you know for for cause or for the Jewish people. Very non-judgmental. He was someone who really really understood uh, Jewish society in the twentieth and twenty-first centuries. So that was you know that's about him. I wanted to speak also was uh, about where he came from, which I touched on last year in the Novominsk side, and I want to explore a little bit uh, further uh, in the different uh, areas of Jewish life that uh, were, were in his uh, in his family, in his history. Um, so he spoke about his Novominsk ancestors a bit last year, and I just want to fill in a couple of holes on the Novominsk side, actually. I mentioned how his father, Abnachem Mordechai Perlau, immigrated, he was a Novominsk rabbi, immigrated to the United States in 1927, settles on the Lower East Side, and then in, in Crown Heights. 
His father, Abnachem Mordechai Perla, as the Navi Rebbe, happened to have a younger brother. And his younger brother's name was Rabbi Yosef Perlau. When their father, the previous, uh, two previous Navi Minsker Rebbe's before that, his name was Rabbi Alta Yisrael Shimon, we spoke about him last year on the tribute. So he passed away in Warsaw in 1933. So his older son, Rabbi Mordechai, was already living in the United States. So who becomes the Novominsk Rebbe in Poland? The younger brother, Rabbi Yosef Perlong, who becomes the Rebbe of Novominsk in Warsaw. But what's interesting was is that he was 17 years old and he was still single, which is pretty rare for a Rebbe to be 17 and single. But he was. And that was the Novominsk Rebbe in the... He eventually got married. Um, uh, Novominsk Rebbe in, in Warsaw before the war. He was in the Warsaw Ghetto during the war when the ghetto uprising broke out right now. It's on Pesach. So it fits in. Uh, um, the, the sort of the uprising with the Rebbe, uh, so that he he uh, it breaks out on Pesach. So uh, Rabbi Yosef Perla, the Novomisk Rebbe, in other words, the 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 Rabbi Yaakov Perla, the the Rebbe who we're talking about, uh, his uncle. It's his father's brother, his father's younger brother. So Rabbi Yosef Perla, he's the uh, his house in the ghetto is one of the places where they stored the matzahs that were uh, clandestinely uh, uh, baked in the ghetto. Uh, again, before the uprising, what are the Hasidim in the ghetto concerned about? is uh, the last deportations to Treblinka are starting. There's the uprising breaking out. The Nazis are coming into the ghetto. And what are they doing? They're baking matzahs and storing it at the Novominska Rebbe's house. And he's the one who distributes matzahs to the ghetto poor on the last Pesach in Warsaw. Unbelievable uh, story. And he's deported to Auschwitz. And we're at risk to his life, actually. He used to protest whenever a kapo was beating a fellow inmate. He would get up and protest when everyone else was scared for their own lives and security and, and wouldn't be able to say anything. He would get up and say and stand up for his, uh, for his fellow Jew that he shouldn't be beaten by, by the kapo. And Yom Kippur in Auschwitz, he actually hummed Kol Nidre, lying on his bunk in his barracks in, in Auschwitz. And a few Jews around him joined in and they had this uh, minimal Yom Kippur service uh, in the barracks of, of Auschwitz. Uh, he survives the death march after uh, at the end of the war. He survived Bergen-Belsen, where the death march arrived at. And he's liberated. And then he passes away, unfortunately, a few days later from a typhus epidemic that broke out after liberation in Bergen-Belsen. Uh, a tragic ending to the Novominska Rebbe of Poland, or base of Perlau. No one in his family survived the war either. So this was the Rebbe's uncle. There's another line, actually, from the first Novominska Rebbe. I spoke about him last year. Rabbi Yaakov Perlau, his namesake. Um, so Rabbi Yaakov Perlau was the first of Mitzkrab. So he had, he had the one line that went down to, like I said, Rabbi Yisrael Shimon and, and Rabbi Nachum Mordechai, and then, and then Rabbi Yaakov Perlau, the Novomitz But there was other sons of this original Rabbi Yaakov Perlau, the first Novomitz Rebbe. There was another son named Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh, who immigrated to the United States in 1922, was a Rebbe in Williamsburg. He was also a pioneer of Agudas Yisrael. There was another son of this original Rabbi Yaakov of Novominsk named Rabbi Shleim Achayim, who was a Rebbe in Balchav, and then he and his family were killed out in the Holocaust. He was actually a Mechutten of the Piyatetzna Rebbe. Interesting uh, connection there. Either way, that's on the Novominsk side. But there's also his maternal side. The Novominsk Rebbe's mother was Rebetzin Bela Ruchama, and her father, who I briefly mentioned last year, I want to speak about him a little bit more uh, and his world, uh, that world uh, this year, uh, now a little bit. Um, so his grandfather, his maternal grandfather, this Rebetzin Bailey Ruchama's father, his name was Rabbi Yitzhak Zelig Morgenstern, the Sakalava Rebbe, a scion of the Kutsk dynasty, a great grandson of the Kutsker. So 
you have Kutsk, which we had a few episodes about. There's a lot to you know, a lot to say. A lot still, plenty more to say about Kutsk. But um, but the Kutsk, we usually uh, when we talk about Kutsk, we usually say how when the Kutsker passed away, so it moved on to his students, the Chedushi Arim, Ger, and Sachachav, which is was his, also family, was his son-in-law. But the Kutsk dynasty actually, the dynasty actually continued to a certain extent in Kutsk by the Kutsk Rebbe's son. Uh, he had a son named Reb David who succeeded him, and he in turn was succeeded by his son, Reb Chaim Yisrael Morgenstern, who was a fascinating Reb of his day. He's a grandson of the Kutzker. One day we have to do an episode about the Kutzk descendants. It's, it's some very interesting stories, some very interesting personalities there. Reb Chaim Yisrael was in Kutzk. Uh, later on, he moved, in 1888, he moved to Pilov, another town nearby, and he joined this Reb Chaim Yisrael Morgenstern, the grandson of the Kutzker, great-grandfather of the Novominsker Rebbe, and the father of the Sakalover. So he, this Reb Chaim Yisrael, he joins and supports the Chayvavei Tzion movement, the Lovers of Zion movement. He even tried to organize a group of a thousand Hasidim to buy land in Israel and settle there, an agricultural settlement and to the mitzvahs, hatzluyas, ba'aretz, the special mitzvahs that are pertinent only in working the land, only in farming the land. And he organized a group called Agudas Ha'elef to have a thousand farmers. And he got some seed money and initial investment. And he, the main investment uh, investor was supposed to be Rothschild because he was building all those colonies at the time as the first Aliyah. And he was supposed to match it. Uh, first, one of the early early matching campaigns, uh, but Rothschild backed out. So, hope that doesn't happen at any of the matching campaigns these days. That the matchers back out because what happened was is that when Rothschild backed out, the whole plan fell through. They didn't have enough funding, so it didn't work out. This uh, settlement that the Pillover Rebbe Reb Chaim Yisrael Morgenstern uh, had in mind in 1891, he goes a step further. Very controversial at the time. He authors a pamphlet called Shalom Yerushalayim and about settling in Israel, and about the Geula. In essence, it was a harbinger of the Messianic Zionism. It's, it's so wild. It's from an early, such an early source. It's way before Rav Cook or anyone else. A uh, very unlikely source. He, he, a Hasidic rabbi from Poland, the grandson of the Kutzker. A uh, very unique and interesting story of, 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 uh, of ideas of Messianic Zionism at the time. Um, there was lots of opposition. He did get uh, an approbation to his safer from the Avdei and even a begrudging one from the Svasemis, who was not very supportive of the ideas there, but still he wrote a, a uh, letter of, of support to him. But on the other hand, he got a lot, faced a lot of opposition for these ideas. Uh, understandably, one of them was from the Radzina Rebbe, you know, it goes back to the Ishbitz Kutsk divide. So here was another reason for the uh, two, uh, two uh, opposing factions to have what to dispute about. Uh, so there's no surprises there. But even more surprising, what was surprising was even from his own son, the future Sokol of a Rebbe, Bitsakzelig Morgenstern, in his own Chutzer, he faces opposition. Uh, so this is the MS of Kutsk, how it continues, that the son opposes ideologically his father. This is the grandfather that I'm in Scrabble. Um, he says this is, this is wrong, this is not the right way, and he didn't support what his father was doing. Uh, unfortunately, afterwards, Reb Chaim Yisrael uh, uh, sustained some personal family tragedies. His wife and his daughter passed away in succession, and he dropped the whole thing. Later on, his son, the Sakal of Rebbe, he said that, he, that his father liked the Chayvei Tzion movement when it was the movement was in Odessa, the Russian Zionists, because then it was about building colonies, establishing uh, farming colonies, agricultural settlements, settling the land. And he much less liked 
the what later developed the political Zionism, which arose with Herzl, that he was less supportive of. So, um, so he clarified uh, his his father's position. So when uh, when uh, the Pilava Rebbe passed away uh, in 1905, all four of his sons became prominent rebbes. A whole story for another time. Most famous though was his oldest son. Who we're speaking about? Who was the Navamitz Rebbe's grandfather? Rabbi Yitzchak Zelig Morgenstern, the Sakalav Rebbe. An amazing life. Um, the Navamitz Rebbe never met his grandfather, his mother's father. Why? Because the Sakalav Rebbe passed away at the beginning of the war, when Rabbi Yaakov Perlau, the future Navamitz Rebbe, was not even ten years old, living in Lower East Side in the United States. So he never even met him. Yet it's fascinating how many similarities there are between the two of them. Um, the Sokolov Rebbe, like I said, like I said, grew up in Kutsk. He was a student of his of his of his grandfather of David, who was the oldest son of the Kutsker. He becomes a rabbi again, a town rabbi, not yet a rebbe. He was the rev of a town, big Talmud Chacham, a tremendous person, Paisik also, and he becomes the town rabbi in Sokolov. So when he becomes he's not Sokolov rebbe yet, he's now the Sokolov rav. Not only that, but he comes also a Sakalav Rosh Yeshiva. He establishes a Yeshiva for young Yeshiva students in the town. So he's a Rav, he's the Rosh Yeshiva, and then he also becomes a Rebbe with his father's passing. Um, on his own, he was an autodidactic. Uh, did, uh, I hope I said that right. If I didn't, then it's because I'm not autodidactic. Um, so, so he studied on his own uh, foreign languages, including Latin, believe it or not. He, he studied medicine on his own. He would even write medical prescriptions to get medicine from the local pharmacist. Unbelievable. So he was one of the greatest leaders of Polish Jewry. Even before World War I, when Poland was still part of the Russian Empire, he participated in the famous St. Petersburg rabbinical conference called by the Tsar. There he met Reb Chaim Brisker and the, Rashab, the Rabbi the Rashab of Chabad, who he had a relationship with, both of those two as well. Later on, he's one of the founders and leaders and members of the Masses G'dayla Yatayra of the Agudis Israel in Poland. He attended all three Knesset G'daylas of, excuse me, of Agudis Israel. He would be one of the speakers there. He had a Great sense of humor. So people like to hear him, like to talk to him. Um, he would make jokes a lot, especially when he spoke to younger, his yeshi, younger students, his younger, the youth. He understand that, that the way to get to the youth was through humor. That's what he believed. Um, and uh, he was very, very active in Agudis Yisrael. And despite his opposition to Zionism, he still inherited from his father a love of settling the land. And he encouraged Tzi'ire Agudis Yisrael and Poyale Agudis Yisrael, the two uh, uh, daughter movements of the uh, of the uh, of the uh, original Agudis Yisrael in Poland, uh, to the two uh, subsidiaries rather of the uh, Agudis Yisrael in Poland to attend Hachsharot, like kibbutzim, basically uh, of, of of training uh, to get to be able to to make aliyah, to be able to move is in Poland before the war, and to be able to become farmers and work in agriculture when they get to Israel. This is Polish Hasidim. He encouraged them to do that. Amazing, amazingly unique, um, uh, unique uh, idea for someone who is a Polish Hasidic rabbi opposed to Zionism. So he was able to make that, you know, maintain that balance that what he believed was uh, was good and what he believed should be done and shouldn't be done. He even visited Eretz Yisrael in 1924, and when he returned to Warsaw, thousands of Hasidim gathered to hear his impression of his visit, and he said, "My fellow Jews, Yidden, go to the Holy Land. It's a good place." So he, uh, this is 1924, uh, in Poland, a very, very, very unique individual. He's one of the founders of the Agudas Rabbana in Poland. He had a close relationship with many of the leading rabbis of this day, such as Rabbi Nachum Zember, Bechonon Wasserman, others. He was very active, like I said, on behalf of the Aguda in leadership. 
He wrote articles very often for the religious newspapers about the Agud and about other topics. Again, this is not so common for a Hasidic Rebbe to do to write articles in the press, in the media. This isn't, wasn't common then, and it's not even common now. Um, and he was one of the founders of the famous Masifta of Warsaw, which the Ger Rebbe was involved in. He was very close to the Ger Rebbe, the Rebbe He was a big supporter of developing, again, a unique, uh, unique visionary, developing the field of Jewish literature for children. He said, we used to not need common literature, uh, you know, stories. Uh, but today we do. And it's something to think about, really, because we take something like that, something so basic as Jewish literature for youth in our society is something we take for granted. But then, in Poland, in, in, in pre-war, it was revolutionary and required a certain element of vision. So who was the one perceiving that need? And who's the one pushing it and supporting it? And had that vision? It was the Sokol of a Rebbe, grandson of the Kutzker in pre-war Poland. Uh, on the first Yom Kippur of the war, his oldest son, unfortunately, Remendel, who was a Robin Vengrov, was stabbed to death by the Nazis, becoming one of the first victims of the Holocaust. He himself passes away a few weeks later and was buried in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery right near his Mechutten, the Navaminska Rebbe. Um, his son, Rabbi Yavin Paltiel, became, another son, became the Sokolov Rebbe in his place. And uh, so this is essentially the Navaminska Rebbe's uncle. Right, his uncle, uh, his mother's brother, he, um, and he ran a yeshiva. This Rebbe Paltiel, he was a rav in a town near Warsaw, and he's in the Warsaw ghetto during the war, and he's employed at the famous Schultz shop along with many other rebbes. The original owner of the shop of Ram Hendel, very special uh, Jew, um, who was actually Sakalav Chassid. He saved his, he tried to save his own rebbe and many, many other of the great uh, rabbis and Hasidic rebbes in in Warsaw in the Warsaw ghetto, which staved off the. Uh, Danger for a while. Eventually, the Nazis uh, had them all killed anyway. But um, uh, but it, it pushed it off for a while. He had them officially employed in this shoe shop, in uh, which was run by Fritz Schultz, a, a, a German uh, manager. And um, so this Rebbe uh, um, Paltiel, I'm sorry, Rebbe Paltiel, the Sokolov Rebbe, during the Warsaw Ghetto uprising again, Pesach time, he was deported to Auschwitz, and he passes away of hunger and weakness shortly before. Uh, the Russian liberation of uh, of the camp, uh, his entire family was wiped out as well. Now that's that's all on on the Navaminskrebe's mother's Sukolov Kutsk side. The Navaminskrebe himself, his connection to Chicago wasn't limited to to Skokie, to Hebrew Theological College. His his Rebetzin, uh the his wife was from Chicago as well. In fact, both of his wives were from Chicago because he married sisters. First, he married Rebetzin Yehudis Eichenstein. And then when she passed away in the late 90s, in the late 1990s, so he goes ahead and several years later marries her sister, who was a widow, uh, Rebetzin Etel Miriam Eichenstein. So, uh, you know, I guess, uh, I guess he couldn't handle more than one mother-in-law, so he had to marry, you know, his second, second wife was, was a sister. Uh, but anyway, so he marries into the Eichenstein family uh, from Chicago. So who are they? Who are the Eichensteins? So his father-in-law actually was Rabbi Ram Eichenstein of the Zidichev Hasidic dynasty. So you have an, a completely another world of Zidichev coming into the picture now. So what's the background on Zidichev? So it's an old dynasty. It's one of the most important, actually, even though uh, numerically may have been not one of the largest, but it was one, very, very important. Uh, explain why in a second. Kamarna also came from from uh, from Zidichev, a few other smaller dynasties. Tosh, Spinka, um, it came in the Galicia, Hungary, Ukraine uh, area. That's where its influence was. Um, Rabbi Tzvi of Zidichev, who was, and Rabbi Isaac, 
uh, Talmud of the Noemi Melech, Hirsch, and um, the big thing about Zidachev was they were Kabbalists, they were mystics. Um, there, there was a dispute in, in the Hasidic movement, the later generations, uh, about how one should dilute the Kabbalah. When it becomes a mass movement, and the masses are joining the movement, do we dilute the message of the Kabbalah? Do we bring it down to the masses? Um, do we remove it altogether? Uh, the Kabbalistic element. We know that, of course, the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid um, were Kabbalists, were mystics, definitely. And they were very much involved in it. It was very much part incorporated into the Avodah Hasidus in the early generations of the movement. Um, and then it was diluted because because the Rebbe is consciously, the great tzaddikim of the early generations of Hasidus, the third and fourth generations, they perceived the needs of the generation and the capabilities of the, once it became a mass movement and expanded beyond an elitist circle like it was in the early generations, and what it may have even been intended for by the Baal Shem Tev and, and the, uh, the Magid, contrary to popular belief that it was initially intended for the masses, and uh, definitely no, nothing in the evidence that supports that, but that's for another time. Um, so the, uh, I think I've mentioned that several times, but in, but the, the idea was how much should Kabbalah play a role in Hasidic thought and belief in the later generations? And Zidachev was one of the only ones, Chabad to a certain extent also, it's a different story, um, but Zidachev was one of the only ones who became like these uh, Balshemtiv purists when it came to Kabbalah. To emphasize Kabbalah, to put out Sifrei Kabbalah, to write new Sifrei Kabbalah, and to keep mysticism and Kabbalistic uh, endeavors as part of the Hasidic Avaidah throughout the generations. They kept it going. They, they were, refused to budge and compromise one inch on the Kabbalah, and they kept it very much uh, part of it. So either way, that's, that's Zidichev. So um, eventually, one of the Zidichev uh, Eniklach, one of the descendants of the dynasty, um, Rabbi Yeshua Heschel Eichenstein, who was the Rav in Chodrov, he was in the fifth generation of the dynasty, and he was, he was in the rabbinate, he, was, he served again as a town rabbi. Um, so a few years after World War I, in the early 1920s, he moves to the United States, he immigrates. And he moves to Chicago, early 1920s to Chicago, which is unheard of, rare for a Hasidic rabbi to move. If he, if and the ones who did it, they all moved to New York to go to Chicago, and that time was almost unheard of for a Hasidic rabbi. And he starts to build Hasidus in Chicago. And eventually his, uh, his son, Rabbi Avram, who was the father-in-law twice over of the Navaminska Rebbe, becomes uh, the Zidachev Rebbe in Chicago, and he passes away in the 1960s. Uh, interestingly enough, um, the, the Zidachev Rebbe, Rabbi Avram, uh, I can see his son, Rabbi Moshe, marries the daughter of Rabbi Nachum Mordechai Perlau, so, who was the previous Navaminska Rebbe. So, so in, incredibly enough, they were brothers-in-law, the Navaminska Rebbe with his brother-in-law, Rabbi Moshe Eichenstein, were brothers-in-law three times over, which is not bad. So that's a little bit about the Eichenstein-Zidichev side as well. So this was a, a Yartzeit tribute to the Navaminska Rebbe. This is Yehudi Gabriel, Trish, Trish, Samites. You can reach me at yehudi.yehudigabra.com for questions, comments, tourist trips, hopefully soon, lectures, sponsorships. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.